Our gospel reading for this first Sunday in Advent comes from Matthew chapter 24. Hear now, once again, God's holy word. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also would the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the, the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word and we ask you as we hear the uh, echoes of these various passages that we have heard this morning as we listen to them and as we hear your voice speak to us, clear our minds from uh, the things that worry us, the things that plague our thoughts, uh, deliver us from every distraction, uh, deliver me from all error and, and help us to focus purely on, on what you have to say for us today. So Father, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Recently, I read about the work of an American miss, uh, missionary named Daniel Everett, who ministered to a small tribe of people deep in the Amazonian jungle. The people group that he ministered to were known as the Pidaha. They, it's spelled P-R, I'm sorry, P-I-R-A-H-A, but they pronounce the R like a D, and it's something like Pidaha is the name of the tribe. This extremely isolated tribe was made up of only about... 250 to 500 people at the most, a very small people group, but they had their own particular distinctive language. And in, in terms of alphabet and grammar and vocabulary, it's thought to be one of the leanest and smallest languages ever studied. Uh, very few sounds, very few words, and, and a very lean grammar. One peculiar feature of this language was that they really don't have a past tense or a future tense. Rather, everything is referred to by whether it's in the realm of immediate experience, whether it's passing out of that realm of immediate experience, or whether it's coming to that realm of immediate experience. So a thing is either here in front of me, or it's passing away from me, or it's coming toward me. Uh, very much like small children in that sense, where you know they think if they cover their eyes that uh, you go out of, you know, sight, you know, they, they, you can't see them if they can't see you, or that's the reason you can play peekaboo with small children is because you're there and then you're not, and then you're there and there you're not. So this tribe thinks that way and they speak that way. They speak only in the present tense. They have no words for yesterday, no words for tomorrow, only a word for other day. And other day could be tomorrow. It could be yesterday. It could be 10 years ago or a hundred years ago. 
this particular way of speaking and thinking, it's not just grammatical, it's not just they speak this way, but they live this way. They have, they have no concept of, of making something today that could be used again on other day, right? And so no tools, no weapons of bone or wood or stone, except uh, maybe a bow and arrow and a scraping tool to sharpen a stone to make an arrowhead. Sometimes they would put together makeshift baskets made of twigs and leaves, but as soon as they were done carrying whatever they needed to carry, they threw away the basket. They didn't keep it. They didn't hold on to it. Uh, there was no sense in, in, in holding on to it. So they threw it away. They had the same approach to their housing. They would just lean leafy branches together until a strong wind blew everything down and they would laugh about it and they would just throw together a new uh, hut out of branches. Uh, uh, Daniel Everett found that they had no mathematics, no numbers, not even one and two. They had just this loose concept of a little and a lot. Money didn't make any sense to them. They traded Brazil nuts that they harvested from the jungle. They traded those with river merchants. They traded them for meats, but they had no way of preserving or curing meat themselves. No sense of doing something today that might help me out tomorrow. No sense of uh, uh, patience in holding on to something today that might even be better tomorrow uh, either. So this tribe has fascinating linguists. Uh, they, they have an, an anthropologist and that they, they have no rituals, no ceremonies, no music, no dance, no word for color, no jewelry. As, so this kind of this amazing living artifact, a tribe frozen in time, completely cut off from the concerns and the influences of the modern world. And so while there's this curiosity, I, I look at them and I read about them and I think, wow, that's also a pretty uh, significant and, and interesting, um, th this unadulterated expression of the pagan view of history and time. For the pagan or the materialist, the person who only believes in what you can see and there's no life or reality beyond what you can see, for the, for the pagan or the materialist or the secular humanist, history is just one thing after another. Time is cyclical at best. If they go so far as to impose any kind of pattern or design on time, they might just say, well, you know, everything kind of repeats itself. It's just one thing after another. Perhaps they might uh, assign some, some gradual, slow, accidental mutations over time. They may, they may talk about adaptation. They certainly do talk about adaptation over time. But it all comes down to a circle of life. In other words, there's no design. There's no order. There, there isn't a story being told throughout history. We would say, on the other hand, that God is the God of history, that he is also the God of the future. If he's the God of the past, he's also the God of the future. You can't go back far enough where God isn't. You won't go uh, at any point in the future where God isn't. God is the God of the past and of the future and of today. He's working through human history to tell a story. He's moving humanity through stages of maturity, raising up a complete and perfect humanity as a bride fit for his son. That's, that's the way you and I talk. However, outside of the Christian uh, faith, you're talking nonsense if you talk that way, that history is a narrative being written by a God who, who is pulling these things together and moving men and kingdoms and nations uh, to, to accomplish something. That, that's nonsense. If you speak that way, functionally, 
the garden variety unbeliever, uh, unless, you know, unless they're a biologist or a historian or they have some fascination, you know, particular fascination with these things, I'm, I'm talking about the average man or woman is not concerned with the deep past or the distant future uh, with any real degree of certainty of what happened in either or what is going to happen. They're fixated principally upon the now just like the Pidaha tribe. It manifests itself differently, but, but in, in so many ways, for many people in our society, there's very little thought given to anything other than the immediate present and how I feel at this moment. And so, uh, once again, an election outcome that I don't like, it's the end of the world, despite the fact that we're gonna have another one in four years, and another one four years after that, and another one four years after that. I mean, you, you don't like the weather? Wait. 10 minutes, you don't, you don't like the uh, election, wait four years. I mean, but, but we can't see that far and we can't think that far ahead. Uh, you can name a million ways that, that people in our world are not really orienting themselves toward the future and the reality that they'll have to face the consequences someday of what they're doing today. So we're like small children in this sense. We're pacified by our distractions and our entertainments. Any, any thought about a bigger world or a bigger story are out of sight and out of mind. And, and certainly you might say, well, teenagers and young people are certainly fixated on the future because everything is ahead of them. Yeah, but, but it's their future, right? It's, it's my future that I'm focused on. I'm not really thinking about the future of the world, the future of my people, the future opportunities for all of us together. I'm, I'm thinking about myself and, and getting my peace. So the church, however, has always been interested in the marking of time. The church has always been interested in record keeping, in history, keeping an eye on the past, remembering the past, and at the same time maintaining an eye toward the future. Why do we do this? Why do we care so much about the past and the future? Why do we care about history and marking time? Well, it's because God it demonstrates this. We're following his example in the scriptures. The Bible is a collection of books all rooted in time, in human history. And, and, and they uphold the importance of both understanding the past and looking to the future. The, the Bible is not simply a timeless set of laws, just lists of things to do and not to do. It isn't a collection of witty sayings. It's a history. The Bible is a history of the world. It is the history of a people within the world. The Bible certainly does contain God's laws, but those laws are hankered in a time and place in history. The Bible does contain many wise proverbs. Those also have a historical context. The poetry and the other forms of teaching are all couched in a time and a place. Laws, proverbs, psalms, prophets, epistles, they're all surrounded by a narrative, by accounts, by stories, by genealogies, by records. And if you divorce them from their historical context, and if you pretend like the narrative is irrelevant, you very quickly and very easily end up with something other than the Christian faith. You, you very quickly end up with something that, that, you know, a cult would think would sound good. You know, let's just lop off the uh, first uh, two-thirds of the Bible. Let's just be New Testament Christians. Well, how can, we, how can we even understand what the New Testament is about unless we understand what God did in the Old Covenant? So appreciation for time and appreciation for place is critical for reading the Bible and to read it for all it's worth. But the Bible doesn't only teach us to mark time and to recognize the history of what God says to us 
not only to recognize it, but also to celebrate time, to move through time and to mark time in such a way that we rejoice in what God has done in the past and look forward with eager expectation of what he's going to do in the future. I've got a little essay at the beginning of that book that I showed you at the beginning um, on, on why Christians mark time and why we follow a calendar, a, a, a calendar of feasts and festivals. I'm just going to give you a little taste, a little teaser of that. At creation, God established the lights of the heavens to not only divide the night from the day, but what did he say? At creation, God said, let them... The, the lights of the heaven, he says, let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Now the word seasons that he uses there, that's not only referencing summer and winter and spring and autumn, that word season specifically refers to festival seasons and special times for worship. It's the same word throughout, used throughout the Bible for feast days. So God set up the stars, the sun, the moon in their courses, and he plotted the course of the earth around the sun and the moon around the earth in such a way that, that it would teach us how and when to celebrate and when to rejoice and give thanks. And so when God establishes Israel as a nation in Leviticus, he provides them a festival calendar synchronized with the seasons of the year. Now, remember, think back to Israel's worship calendar, their, their festal calendar. They started uh, with Passover in the spring. They were to celebrate Passover. What's the theme of Passover? Well, deliverance. Just as the trees and plants and earth in the spring are moving from death to life, as everything comes alive again, they're celebrating Passover. And they're reminded that God has brought them from death to life, from bondage to freedom. Now in the summer, they would celebrate Pentecost. The summer is the season of fruition, of growth and maturation. And so at Pentecost, they were to celebrate the giving of the law by which they would grow and and bear fruit in the spirit. And then in the fall, they had the Feast of Tabernacles, just as they were gathering the harvest in and thanking God for his provision at the end of the, at the, end of the growing season, so also would they be pointed to the final spiritual harvest of all the nations. And they made sacrifices for all the nations at the Feast of Tabernacles. So you see what's going on is Israel moves through history. They, they're following the grand story of what God has done for them year after year after year. And then there are new deliverances. There are new salvations. In, uh, in, in Esther, we read about a great deliverance of God's people that resulted in the holiday of Purim where gifts are exchanged there at Purim. I don't know if they had Purim trees, but they had Purim gifts and they, they stopped and they ate and they feasted and they exchanged good things. So they were apparently free to add good things and, and good days to the calendar as they saw fit and celebrate God's mighty deliverance on their behalf. Nobody stops and, and tells Mordecai, you know what? Uh, God never prescribed Purim. You know, I don't know where you get off thinking you can add a day of celebration where people give gifts and, and have a feast to this calendar. The calendar's done. It's settled. You can't add a day. Like, nobody stops and says that. They're just too busy celebrating. And, and that's, that's in the scriptures. We have that. Later, in the period between the Old and New Testaments... There was another deliverance during the time of the Maccabees. Now, we don't recognize the Maccabees, uh, the book of Maccabees in our scriptures, but uh, there is a pretty famous deliverance that comes, and out of that comes the celebration of Hanukkah, 
Hanukkah, which Jesus celebrates in John 10. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for that feast. So, so Israel had this calendar full of celebrations and seasons and festal days to guide them through every year to reflect on the mighty things that God had done for them, his, his acts of deliverance. Now Jesus today has fulfilled all of these things. He fulfilled all the things that those old feasts pointed to. And now we as a church, as the new humanity, with Jesus and under Jesus, we take dominion over time with new festivals and feasts. We learned from the old covenant. What does God want? What does he desire? And now we celebrate the fulfillment of those things in Jesus. And so from very early on in her history, the church established a new calendar based on the works of our Savior. In the new covenant, we arrange our lives, we arrange our festival days around the life of Jesus. So we begin our calendar today. Today's the first day of the new year on the church calendar. We begin the, the, the new calendar with the great season of Advent, which contains the cycle of Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. And this season, we're going to focus on the future coming of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, and all the ways he reveals himself as the light of the world. What's after that? Well, the second great season of Easter, which includes the Lenten season, the Holy Week, and Easter and Ascension in the spring. And then comes the third great season, the long season of Pentecost. We just left. It's the season of maturation and growth, where the Spirit grows His church. And that, that, that great season includes the feast days of Pentecost, Trinity, and All Saints Day. And the point of this is, and the purpose of this, is that year after year, we retell the story of the gospel through our feasting and through our celebration and through our songs and through all the, all the ways we rejoice in the Lord Jesus. We, we retell the story, we proclaim the gospel through these worship and feast days. When we mark time this way, we testify that time matters. And these events matter. You celebrate things that are important. You don't celebrate, you know, an odd Tuesday where you woke up too late and got a flat. I mean, that's, what, that does, what is that? But you celebrate really big things. You celebrate really important things. And in doing this, we are, we are testifying to the fact that not only are these things important, but God is writing our history. And because he has done these wonderful things, they deserve to be celebrated and rejoiced in and, and, and really uh, exalted in. The, this is what he's done in the world. And the story he is weaving throughout the centuries is worth celebrating. It's worth rejoicing in. And not only that, but that there is a future, a future oriented and directed by the same God who directed history. So we are to be oriented toward that future. The God who wove this great history that we celebrate is still working and is, and is directing the future. <clears throat> Our readings for this first Sunday in Advent point to this. We read a section of uh, chapter 24. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to reflect on the, the gospel the epistle, the lesson, and the psalm reading that, that we've uh, already heard today. Uh, so we read, uh, I read just a few minutes ago in the gospel reading, Matthew chapter 24, a section of chapter 24, maybe one of the most misinterpreted and misunderstood chapters in the New Testament over the past 150 years in the United States, not throughout the rest of the world and certainly not throughout church history, but certainly recently uh, this uh, has been misinterpreted and misunderstood. Here, here, what Jesus is doing, and the thrust of this is Jesus is forbidding his disciples from living only in the present, like the 
Pidaha tribe, living only with blinders on, living in the present, ignorant of the things coming to them around the corner. The section begins, chapter 24 begins with Jesus taking his men on a tour of the temple grounds. And he says, all of this is going away. Remember, he says, surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And what his disciples ask? Well, they ask the natural question, okay, when? When is all of this going to happen? When is the temple going to be leveled? And then uh, there's this other marker there that, that I read. Uh, so, they, so they ask, when will the age of the temple come to pass, the end of the age of the temple? And Jesus answers that question with the prophecy of the coming tribulation of Israel and the way he's going to come in judgment against her. And then he hangs this banner statement over everything in verse 20, uh, 34. He says, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So, so how, it all, whatever, whatever is Jesus, whatever Jesus is saying is going to happen here all takes place within a generation of when Jesus said these things. So there are three markers we need to keep in our mind when we study passages like this, and especially Matthew 24, that three markers that remind us that what Jesus is talking about here is not the end of the space-time continuum. He's not talking about the end of the cosmos. He's talking about the end of the old world of the old covenant. And the first thing that lets us know that is that question and answer. Uh, the, the, the disciples say, when will the end of these things be? These physical things that we see here. And Jesus answers that question. The second thing is that he says this will all happen before this generation passes. The third thing Jesus says is that he says, pray that your flight be not on the Sabbath. That's a reference to the old order of the old covenant. Why is the Sabbath a concern? It's because this is, this is still the, the old world is still in existence when, uh, when all of these things come to pass. The old covenant Sabbath, however, doesn't carry over into the new covenant. Paul and the other epistle writers don't spend a lot of time saying, uh, keep the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't repeat the command to keep the Sabbath. So what, this is, what, what Jesus is talking about, he's answering that question, when is the judgment of Jerusalem, the last days of the old world, of the old covenant, when is all this coming to an end? And he recognizes um, that, that these, these events, uh, in saying, for example, that um, pray that your flight be not in the Sabbath, he's saying this is, this is not something that's going to happen to the Gentile world, the church, the world of the new covenant. This is... This is stuff that's happening to the old world where the Sabbath still means something. Uh, so are there echoes of final judgment here? Certainly, just as there are echoes of final judgment when the prophets talk about the Babylonian captivity or the Assyrian captivity, certainly. But he's answering their question about impending judgment. And in doing that, Jesus references the days of Noah, where, where even though there was this great, terrible wickedness everywhere, everyone was acting as if everything was ordinary and they were carrying on their lives as if nothing would ever change. And they would go right on eating and drinking and marrying forever. The circle of life would just continue. That's what they expected in the days of Noah. None of their wickedness, they thought, would ever be called into account or judged. Nothing apocalyptic on the horizon as far as they're concerned. Until, Jesus says, Noah entered the ark, and then the end of that world came in a disastrous and dramatic and conclusive fashion. Now, Jesus says the coming destruction of Jerusalem is going to be similar. There will be those who are not watching. They have no orientation toward the future. They're not looking ahead at what I'm doing. They'll be carrying on just like life is normal, working in the field, grinding at the mill, 
And some of them will be snatched away. Some of them will be carried away in judgment, not, not raptured away to heaven, but snatched away by an invading army. And just as God visited judgment on his people uh, in the past through the Assyrian army and the Babylonian armies, so Jesus is saying that the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh is coming again. The, the, another day of my coming is on the horizon. And in this event, we'll find that he uses the Roman army to visit final judgment upon the city of Jerusalem. They, they talked about, as Zephaniah talked about the coming, uh, approaching Babylonian army as the day of Yahweh. Well, here's another day of Yahweh, and it's coming as the Roman army visits uh, judgment upon the temple. So Jesus tells his men, this is coming. You watch, you be ready. Not everyone's going to be watching. Not everyone's going to be ready. You don't act like everything is just going to truck along the same forever. And you don't be saturated with the here and now. Don't be nearsighted. In, in our epistle reading, in Romans 13, uh, Paul has a similar call to readiness and watchfulness. Remember we heard from Romans 13. Let me reread that for you and, and let's uh, refresh it quickly. Paul writes, Knowing the time, know, now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Paul says, you are people of the day. You are people of the light. You're not simply wandering in ignorance and darkness. You're not milling around, wasting your time until something happens. The new creation, the new heavens and the new earth have already started to dawn with the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in so many words, you are people of the future. The old world is going to be judged soon, but in the meantime, you work as people of the light in a world that still thinks it's nighttime. In a world that still thinks it's all darkness, you are people of the day. They're engaged in the works of darkness. You engage the works of light. So in our readings today, you'll, you'll notice, and I hope you picked up on this, there's a lot about light and darkness. And it's good to read these in a time of year where it feels like the world is coming to an end, where it's dark when you get up in the morning and it's dark when you get home from work at night. It's dark like at two o'clock in the afternoon now. Do you feel that way? It's like dark all the, it's dark all the time. And if you haven't started already, you're going to start putting lights everywhere just to beat back the darkness. You're going to put lights outside on your house and you put lights, uh, extra lights in your house, on your tree. And you're going to do everything you can to combat the overwhelming darkness. But it's going to keep getting darker until Christmas. Christmas turns everything around. It starts getting lighter again. We see it very, illustrated very clearly, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. Somebody always says, you know what? It's only that way in the Northern Hemisphere. I got it. Southern Hemisphere, they need to flip their church calendar around and they need to celebrate Christmas sometime in July, I think. I'm all for it. I think that's a good idea. But uh, we see it up here. We're blessed to see it in the Northern Hemisphere very clearly. The light is coming. It feels dark now, but the light is coming. Hold on. Hold out. Don't succumb to the darkness. Don't despair. Paul says, you throw off the works of darkness and you live in the reality of God's future. 
What is that reality? What is the reality of God's future that, that Paul is calling us to? It's the reality that Jesus will have dominion from shore to shore. It's the knowledge, uh, it's the glory that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's the reality that evil has no future. And I say that every once in a while, but I have to repeat it to myself to let that sink in. And I hope you don't get tired of me saying it, but I've got to repeat it every once in a while because we, we start to feel like everything's closing in on us as if everything is getting more and more wicked and terrible and awful and, and foul and perverse. And we feel like we're losing. It feels like it's an uphill battle. We're swimming against the stream. We're, we're cutting against the grain and we're losing and we're tired of fighting. But you need to remember that, that evil has no future. There is no future in evil. We can't be like the pagan locked into the here and now who can only see what's right in front of us. God has told us what the future holds and we must hold fast to the truth that there is no future in the works of darkness. Evil does not win. Satan does not get the victory over human history. And Paul lists some things, revelry and drunkenness, lewdness and lust, strife and envy. He says those things all have bullseyes on them. Those things are all in the crosshairs of God's judgment. Those works are all going to be destroyed along with those who love those things more than Jesus, who love those things more than life. And so Paul issues this call to these people whom he loves. He says, wake up, cross over from the stalled out, stuffy, wearisome, tedious, dead end of darkness and join those of us who are living in the future of God's ever increasing light and life. And so if we skip back to Isaiah, which we heard earlier, we see Isaiah pick up on this very same theme of light and increasing light and peace and prosperity for, for the kingdom of God. Look at uh, Isaiah 2. I'll read this again to uh, refresh it for us. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Isaiah gives us this image of the mountain of the house of Yahweh established at the top of the mountains. It's a mountain established among the mountains, exalted above all the hills. What is this mountain? Better yet, who? Who is this mountain? Who is the rock in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? In, you remember in Daniel, the, the rock that grows into a mountain and throws down all the other kingdoms? Of course, the rock is Christ. The rock is always Christ. And so in Isaiah, we see all the kingdoms flowing up to that mountain into the Lord's house. All men everywhere learn uh, God's ways. They flock to hear God's law and they depend upon his word. When does this start to happen? When do we get there? 
where is this mountain and how, we get, how, do, how do we get to it? Well, it's already started and you're on that mountain right now, according to Hebrews 12. You have ascended today in the power of the Holy Spirit into God's sanctuary. You meet God with, his, uh, with God on his mountain uh, on the Lord's day. And because we're in union with Jesus, he is the mountain, he is the rock. Uh, we're in union with him, we also are the rock. We are the mountain to which the nations come for wisdom and law. Now, now this vision isn't fully realized yet. This comes progressively, it comes gradually through time until we come to that time of peace where swords and spears are worthless. You don't need them anymore. Melt them down, hammer them out, repurpose them as plows and hedge trimmers because no one is studying war any longer. What's that thing? It's a gun. What do we need that for? I don't know. I forgot. We don't need it. We don't need it because everyone is a subject of the Prince of Peace. We aren't there yet, but because you and I are future oriented, we look forward to that. We pray for that. We expect peace and we work for peace because we are people of the day and we live in the increasing light of Yahweh. And then finally, a glance at our Psalter reading from Psalm 122. You remember also how it harmonizes this vision of joy in going up to the house of Yahweh and out of the house of Yahweh, peace and prosperity flows. David sings that in Jerusalem, there are thrones set for judgment. Uh, that theme of judgment comes back from Matthew 24 and Romans 13. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that, that God's people will be established as judges, authorities over the world. And so we're reconnected to our original callings as kings, taking dominion over creation. And that is a step in the direction of peace. We expect peace and we work for peace uh, again in, in Psalm 122. David also shares Isaiah's emphasis on peace as he sings, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Peace be within your walls. And, and so he catches all those various themes in that psalm. So the point of all this, pull all these texts together and hear what God is telling us about our future. Advent is the time of year where we're brought to reflect on all the various ways that Jesus comes to us. He comes to us in judgment. He comes to us in blessing. He comes to us to speak to us and to commune with us. He came to us as as a man, he came to us in the incarnation as a child. He came to us to live a life of perfect obedience before the Father on our behalf, to die for us, to be raised for us. He continues to come to shake things up, to turn things over, to set things right. He visits his creation through his body, his church, to change the world and to transform it into a peaceful, productive place where God's will is done on earth just as it is done in heaven. The vision that Isaiah gives us is not some vague, abstract thing that might be nice. It's some dream. No, it's a firm reality. It's, it's, it's our, our hope. And so we can faithfully, happily work toward that, leaving, leaving all the outcomes up to him who is in charge of the future. Our work, we know, is, is progressively and... and um, 
and gradually working toward a glorious kingdom. But, but our work is not forgotten. It's not meaningless. We can rejoice in the here and the now and the small things as, as the Lord takes them and shapes them and uses them to build up this kingdom that he speaks about in Isaiah. And so we see in these texts a vision of the future that God has promised his beloved. This is the future that the Lord Jesus has given his life on a cross to secure for you. And yet, in spite of all that God has done in history and all that he continues to accomplish, it's so easy for us to despair. It's so easy for us to be suffocated by fear as if the future is not settled or or as if there's no future at all, only the doldrum of the present. A present in which we cope by latching onto the works of darkness, the works of the old world, that we get trapped in that dead-end cycle of subsistence survival without any hope or outlook on the future. But if God has written history and has shown himself to be faithful as he does in history, if he has made promises and kept them, then every word he has said has been proven to be true. Therefore, why fear? as he continues to be Lord over time, even Lord over the future, uh, he's not just Lord over the future in general, but he's Lord over your future. He's Lord over all your days. And if you let yourself believe that the future is not settled and secured by God, then you're gonna be full of worry. You're gonna be paralyzed by fear and unable to focus on anything other than your own lack of control when it comes to the future. You can only focus on your own self-preservation today. And if that's, if that's the state of mind we allow ourselves to get into, we start to lack hope. If you have no biblical orientation toward the future, you lack hope. Hope is a funny word in the English language. Paul lists it among the three great spiritual gifts, right? Faith, hope, and love. We know what faith is, right? I think we can all give a definition of faith. We know what love is, right? What is, what is hope? It's a word that we use uh, constantly for something we're not completely sure of. Well, I sure hope I can make it when you know 97% possibility is that you're not going to make it. You know, you say, I, I hope it works out. I, 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 I hope you're right. I hope we won't get eaten by a bear if we walk through the woods late at night. I hope, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to get eaten by a bear. That's the way we use the word hope. We use hope in this very skeptical way. You know what genuine hope though is? If you've ever really lost hope, if you've ever been in a place of of despair where you know there's no way of putting things back the way they were, there's no way of fully realizing that thing you wanted, and you know it's just never going to happen the way you wanted it to happen, so you might as well give up. You know what hope is if you've lost it. Put in that context then, hope is not wishful thinking. Christian hope is expressed when you know that what God has promised is going to happen and you put your faith in God that he's going to do what he said he is going to do. Christian hope in the future, in God's glorious future for his church and for his people, Christian hope is a courageous confidence that what God has said will come to pass. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith 
for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Hope is knowing that what Jesus has done for you in your sinful condition is efficacious for your salvation. Hope is knowing, it's the confidence that because of what Jesus has done for you, it means you're not going to enter condemnation. And rather, all things are working out together for your good. That Jesus died for you, that he rose again for you, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father for you, that he rules over all creation for you, that Jesus is moving history toward peace and glory for you. And in thanksgiving for that, you can rest in the fact that all of his promises are yes and amen. So the scriptures call us to have this wide angle perspective, not, not this very closed off, not stranded in the present, but to have hope in the glorious future that he is working out on behalf of his people. The scriptures call us not to live with blinders on, but to draw out, look back, look forward, and know that God is on the move, that Jesus is coming. Put away the works of darkness and embrace the future that he is working out and preparing for you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you not only are the God of the past and not only have you done wonderful things in the past, but that you are still working and active in your creation, in your church, through your body, and that you are still accomplishing wonderful things. Uh, correct our perspective that so easily despairs and is pessimistic on the, the things we see around us and, and help us to be oriented toward your good and peaceful and, and hopeful future. And so, Father, we pray that you would touch each of us with a, a, with a vision of, of what you have coming for us. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.